Have you got, the, have you got this now? Yes, I'm staring at it's it. Good. It's no hurry. No worry. worry. No curry, yeah? All right, go. No worry. No curry. No. Oh. Curry, you know, as in curry. You make food. Curry. Ah, curry. Yeah, 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 curry. <laughs> <laughs> no hurry, no worry, no curry. No hurry, no worry, no curry. <laughs> no hurry, no worry, no curry. Hello everyone. Hello. As you know, this podcast is all about healthy living. And today we have an interesting topic on understanding the connection between the mind and, and meditation. What is it that actually allows us to um, be more, uh, to understand the benefits of meditation scientifically? And uh, Pavan today has brought a very interesting person with us. Today's guest is Heather Mason. She's someone who's found time to do at least four degrees at master's level. Wow. I don't know, I'll count do one, let alone four. Uh, and they're all very interesting degrees that I would want to do one day. Uh, neuroscience, psychotherapy, medical physiology, and an interesting one is a uh, master's in Buddhist studies. Is it Buddhist studies or Buddhism? No, Buddhist studies. Buddhist, Buddhist studies. studies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a, a one, uh, one hell of a journey. So, uh, what led you to, down this route? Well, academically... Everything I've studied, minus the current degree, uh, the medical physiology one, which I've just finished, I studied because I wanted to make sense of how the mind was operating from a different perspective. So when I did Buddhist studies, I focused on Buddhist psychology. Psychotherapy, that's a really clear link. And for neuroscience, I also wanted to understand how the brain works, because the brain and the mind are so deeply aligned. The reason that I started all of this, though, um, I was suffering from depression and anxiety, and I come from New York City, and the culture there was to become medicated as a way to deal with Mm. those emotions, and I was very resistant to go down that path. So I actually left New York when I was 23, moved to Asia, and through kind of chance, we could call it karma, I ended up in Buddhist monasteries for three years doing intense practice. And originally it was to help to heal those mental experiences, but then later I became really interested in what it meant to see the world more clearly, for the mind to be more peaceful. And everything I've done since, academically, has just been to support that Mm -hmm. and also to understand that other people don't want to go to a monastery for three years. (laughs) And how can I help them more expediently than in silence, alone, in Burma or Thailand? Um, And the medical physiology degree came in because I'm really right now trying to bridge the worlds of medicine and mind-body practices, and to do that, you have to really understand the medical world. You can't just say, hey, this works, because they said so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Very that's true. where I'm coming from. It's interesting. You can see how the journey started, yeah. uh, where life, living life in a melting pot, yeah. made you a certain being. True. And then in that way, the only way out of it, listen to your story, you had to go deep into your spiritual aspect, mm-hmm. find some truth, and then coming back into life, you thought about, how you could integrate it with living life today. 
mm-hmm. you know, and making it make sense. That's, that's quite a journey. I think a lot of people, especially in the podcast, we talk about stresses that we feel, um, mm-hmm. how in stressful situations we turn to addiction, we turn to cravings, we turn to food. Yeah. And a lot of people haven't got mechanisms to get out of it. Yeah, um, that's true. So it's interesting how your journey went through that living life, understanding it's not working out, discovering mm. yourself and then bringing it all out. Mm. Yeah. And to be really honest, in full disclosure, my mechanism for working with my depression until I met meditation was alcohol. I had to, mm. So that was like a form of self-medicating. Mm. So I very mm. much understand the need to find something to substitute that, to create a well-being feeling that is healthy. Romina, you talked about in the last episode about nutrition craving and uh, with Heather's background in neuroscience and how that works and Mm. obviously, I guess, with uh, substance abuse and chemicals, Mm -hmm. does the food and, like, say, sugar and sweet buns and chocolate Mm -hmm. ice creams and crusty Mm -hmm. creams, all that, does that have the same kind of addictive nature as, say, substance abuse would? I don't think the same addictive nature. I Mm. mean, I know this idea that sugar is more addicting than cocaine. That I don't disagree with, but I don't think you see people selling their souls. (laughs) I was about about to say, could I go sell a kilo of sugar for like 20 grand? (laughs) No, I don't think people sell their souls for... um, in the same way for sugar. You know, you're not going to see somebody giving up their job to get a hot cross bun. <laughs> but that's because it's so available and accessible. That's true. I think that that's true. But the thing the thing that's different, possibly, with these two, you know, food versus, mm. like, drug addictions, is that the reason both of these are addictive is they release this certain special chemical in your brain that makes you feel ultra good called dopamine, right? Mm. Uh, addictive substances like drugs, those release quick, whereas things like your sugary, yummy foods release it, but not as quickly. So as a result of that, you're not seeking out the next quick fix mm. no, and hit. Yeah. But we do know through research that's been coming out that actually some meditation practices and yogic practices increase the release of dopamine, the same feel-good chemical in the brain. So if you do those when you really want sugar or whatever other habit you want Mm. to engage in that gives you that quick hit, you may not have the same Mm. spike in pleasure, but you'll have something. And this woman who works with me, her name is Shora Hall, and she's amazing. She will actually, there's a practice called Yoga Nidra, which is led by somebody else talking you through in a hypnotic way. Guided um, meditation. Like a guided meditation. Uh-huh. Yoga Nidra has been shown to increase dopamine specifically. So she'll have somebody who has a serious craving on her mat, and she'll like pat their head while she's guiding the meditation. And she has found this so effective mm. for people with serious, serious craving issues. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. with uh, this practice, is there a lead time? So if I did it for five minutes, I'll, I won't hit that dopamine high. Or to mm. do it a certain time, if I do it for half an hour, I'll get more. If I do it for an hour, I'll get even more. Is it, is it an exponential thing or is it? What a wonderful question. So dopamine amount of release will decrease 
the more that you provide the same substance, whatever it is. Mm. So, for example, especially when you're talking about drugs or food, mm. which is why you start off eating a little bit of sugar, and then suddenly you find at the end of the day you want five chocolate bars, <sighs> right? Or if we're talking something even more serious, you start with a little bit of cocaine use, and you're finding that you need much more to release that same kind of hit. But in terms of positive activities that increase dopamine release, we don't know, number one, how long it specifically takes for that to happen. That's mm. a wonderful and really interesting question. And number two, we don't know um, if the positive effects wear off. They may not in the same level that adding an external substance like sugar or a drug does. Maybe mm. that can be stabilized. It's a great mm. question. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And well, how is... Sorry. I was just curious that this, this whole thing about taking in substances or alcohol yeah, or things like yeah. that, that that has a negative impact, mm. it seems, psychologically uh, yeah. and at the, sort of the neuro level. Is the same true for food generally, do you think? I've, you know, often hear this phrase, you know, you are what you eat. Mm. Do, you, do, do you, Have you seen any sort of connection that suggests that, you know, the type of food you eat is going to have an impact on the mind or how the brain works? I, I definitely, definitely, I mean, I've experienced it, mm. you know, high sugar days for me, because, listen, I'm sitting here talking about it, but yes, I eat sugar. So do I. You know, I feel more anxious. Yeah. And also, I feel tired later, because you have mm. a spike, and then the system depletes mm. a lot of its resources, and the process of using up the sugar that's within your body, um... And so you feel really tired. Likewise, I know from colleagues of mine that, for example, a great a great uh, clinical situation is with ADHD. We know that certain foods that kids eat will trigger higher levels of ADHD. Right. In fact, and this is interesting, the yellow and the red M&M in the United States, not in the UK, because you don't use the same thing, but the yellow and the red M&M have particular chemicals that are used to color them that have actually been associated with activating hyperactivity. Thankfully, Mm. the red M&M in the UK is made with beet. So it's natural. (laughs) I don't know what the yellow one's made with. (laughs) Maybe there could be a trade in British red M&Ms in the US. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Um, For those who don't know, ADHD is an attention deficit disorder. (laughs) For, you know, uh, the non-scientific world, yeah, people, children who who are extremely hyperactive. Um, On an emotional level, as you said, on on the the mind level, um, Mm -hmm. what research has been done, um, scientifically speaking? So, um, as you know, here at the Brahma Kumaris, we talk a lot about meditation, but it's always fascinating to hear anything that's scientifically proven on the benefits of meditation over the mind. So, meditation research actually goes back for... I don't know, maybe like 40, 50 years now. There's a lot. Mm, Um, Let's see. And we were talking about this earlier, actually. So one of the things we know, and we've known this now for 50 years, which is really important, is that when you engage in meditation, and it takes a minimum of three minutes, there's this major change in your system that can happen. It doesn't always happen, but it can happen. And it's been coined the relaxation response. And the defining features of this relaxation response are, first of all, a reduce in muscle tension, so a reduction of muscle tone. And the other thing is that your individual cells 
use less energy and less oxygen. And when they're doing that, they're not engaged in a process of breaking down as much, and instead they're building up. So actually, that opens the door for the whole natural inherent capacity of healing that our body possesses to be supported. In addition, we also know that various aspects of the brain are strengthened through meditation. One that's really in fashion right now is called our prefrontal cortex. It's around the forehead region, and it's responsible for helping us to make better decisions, rational thought, and clarity. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you have also research about chemical increases as a result. For example, yoga, which isn't specifically meditation, although meditation is an aspect, you can increase, and some of the best research in yoga showed this, something called GABA. Mm. GABA is something released in the brain, and it is correlated with helping us to reduce anxiety. In fact, Valium increases GABA levels, <laughs> right? And alcohol, it helps the brain to pick up GABA more effectively. That's why we feel so kind of like blissed out. Mm. But the thing is, you can do it naturally with yoga. One hour of yoga, and that's really, really nice. That's amazing, because you just mentioned that meditation increases GABA, which is good for us. Yeah. It also increases dopamine, yes. which is good for us. Yes. So that's like a double whammy, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, no wonder, no wonder the yogis look so young. Now I can understand at a cellular level what's, what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're meditating, this production of gather and dopamine, does that happen concurrently at the same time, do you think? Or is it separately or apart from that? Because they both sound good things to have in our system floating around at certain times. So, actually, the dopamine and the GABA network interact together. Okay, so, okay. so, and without getting too in-depth... Um, the creation of dopamine, the creation of GABA, rather, in some cases, results from the breakdown of GABA. So they're okay. they're working as a team. So it's like piggybacking on just yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Or one will activate the release of the other. Okay, so both do. Yeah. You mentioned one other thing about is um, the slowing down of the cells and they don't <laughs> use up so much energy. Is that why sometimes sleep is considered a great thing to do, having good restful sleep because our bodies metabolic way to slow down and obviously mm -hmm. healing nothing happens at that stage yeah absolutely i mean it is at that state where we're not engaging in constant like faster metabolic breakdown our cells are getting they're still working they're mm. always working but they're getting a touch of a break um yeah so sleep is vital because we really do have the capacity within our individual cells to rebuild mm. we it's amazing But there's a level at which you're going to tip it. If you keep adding stress or bad food over and over, the cells don't have that opportunity. It's like they're doing constant, what is it called? They're doing like um, putting out little fires, mm -hmm. <laughs> troubleshooting, yeah. rather than being able to build. Um, but what's really interesting off the back of what you said, Pollen, is that this particular state of relaxation through meditation has been shown to be much greater mm. for cell rebuilding than sleep. Okay. And that's pretty cool. And in fact, after just eight weeks of doing it, you can change a lot of your genes and how they manifest for the better. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. After eight weeks? After eight weeks. Wow. After eight weeks. Well, that kind of also in, in input <laughs> into, say, um, habits. Mm -hmm. uh, cravings, uh, addictions, certain kind of um, 
learned pathways. You know, certain habits that you want to break. If you get into that mode of meditating and calming yourself down, can you start changing these? I think you can. You know, you're changing yourself at a genetic cellular level. So wouldn't that have a profound effect on the whole of your being? You know, and also it's like you start to perceive yourself differently. Oh, I'm somebody who's well and healthy. Hmm. And when you associate yourself with those values, sometimes you align yourself. It's just like, you know, when you get a new group of friends, you become one of them, you know. So you're becoming like a healthy person and healthy Hmm. persons eat well and exercise okay. and go mm. to sleep <laughs> for eight hours yeah, and does the yeah other, I need to say that and does it work from the other way around so we talked about the evening if you eat if you eat bad foods then that has a negative impact on the mind and mm-hmm. the brain so is the opposite also true that if you eat good food then that's going to have a positive in, impact or do you need to do the meditation bit first and that influences you know the quality of the food that you then take I think actually, I think actually it can go either way. My father's the best example for me. So about five years ago, my father was given a diagnosis of high blood pressure. He's a very disciplined person when he wants to be. So he had decided he is going to completely revamp his diet. I mean, he is now the poster child for healthy (laughs) eating, the poster adult. (laughs) And he's not known for being the easiest most flexible person either and he's also suffered from a lot of mental health issues and he's changing a lot and he said to me it's in the food it's Mm. all in the food and I've seen it in somebody that I'm so close to Mm. so you know different people can come in from different avenues I think that's important some people are better at changing their diet some people are better at meditating the point is the mind and body are connected so Somehow yeah. one will impact yeah. the other, and um, yeah. yeah. I've come across so many people that, certainly within the Brahma Kumaris meditation practice, that um, you know, it encourages vegetarian eating, for example, and some um, you know do the vegetarian diet first, and then they find that that has a positive impact on their meditation. Mm-hmm. While others do it the other way around, where they start meditating, and then they realise that actually it's easier for them to give up meat as a result of that practice as well. So it, you're right; it does seem to work yeah. both ways. Yeah, and I think that there can be something in not having any of those animal byproducts in your yeah. body that can feel quite light and healthy. And mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. And what is your practice today? Like, what what do you do to lead a healthy life? Um, so I always try and get enough sleep. For me, sleep is really, mm. really important. Eight hours is vital. Um, eating healthy is important, and eating loads and loads of greens. I did nutrition this year. I <laughs> too. And our nutrition lecturer really ingrained into us that your vegetables should be the major part of your diet. So I've been trying to do that. And I exercise about five times a week, sometimes yoga and sometimes more intensive mm. like interval training. And then the other thing I do is I try to surround myself with good people because I think they I also really... Mm impact mm-hmm. our wellness you know our relationships are so important for our ability to reduce our cravings and also they influence <laughs> how we eat if you have friends that eat well you're more likely to eat well yeah yeah, yeah. Very true. but i think meditation is vital as my, as my teacher used to say and i love this he said you wouldn't leave your house with bad breath would you but you <laughs> 
And so many people, they will leave their house with dirty minds. <laughs> Let me tell you, bad breath never caused a war. <laughs> but very negative thinking yes. has. <laughs> yeah, very, that's a very apt thing for today's, today's very, world very as well, hard. isn't it? There's one more thing you mentioned, actually, was mindfulness. Yeah. And uh, I was looking around uh, and I came across mindful, the mindful diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that I do as a practitioner of Brahma Kumari is we give our food like uh, blessings uh, and good mm-hmm. vibrations. And I thought the mindful diet, which is a program where they're very mindful how they eat, what they eat, mm-hmm. in the manner they eat. And it's the same kind of similar kind of thing that with the Brahma Kumaris is that giving uh, our food good vision, good mm-hmm. vibration. And the mindful diet is something that you do with your mindful practice. Sometimes I do it, you know. Unfortunately, like many of us, I do live a very busy London life. Um, But I have done it for many years in the monastery for every single meal. And when you eat mindfully, you taste the flavors clearly. You also understand that some of the things you thought you liked, like sugar, may not be as delicious as you thought. Mm. You also give time for the natural appetite suppressant which occurs when you're full, mm. to come into play. It doesn't release in your system to 20 to 30 minutes of eating. So if you eat quickly and not mindfully, you could eat a whole mountain of food yeah. before you realize you're full. Mm. So when you, when you eat mindfully as well, you see the value in your food, and I think you give a sense of appreciation and gratitude for being able to have this. I mean... Food comes to you through various different animals and plants giving their life. Mm. Many people taking that food and producing it. Insects being involved in the process of pollination. So much goes into it. And if you take time to really be with your food, you see this is this magical thing keeping you alive that not everybody has access to, not every person and not every living being. And so it shifts your whole perception around eating. And I think that that affects how you eat because you think this is about nourishment, not always about just deliciousness. Yeah. So um, looking at all the different amazing degrees <laughs> you have and the <laughs> masters uh, and all the experiences and even your personal story about how you actually got so interested in this connection between the mind and the body mm-hmm. and especially on the, on the, on the mental level, uh, what would be your top three tips for all those listening today? Everyday life. Top three tips. Wake up every morning and reflect on five things that you're gracious for. Um, Our society is based upon the premise that we don't have enough, Mm -hmm. and that can feed a lot of personal insecurity. So remember how much you actually have and start Mm -hmm. your day that way. Another thing that I suggest is doing about 10 to 15 minutes of slow breathing at about five breaths a minute. I don't have time now, mm-hmm. but the clinical benefits of that are huge. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very, very simple. And then um, either doing you know, some additional meditation or some yoga. And if you don't have much time, focus on your back. Because if the back is flexible, the rest of the body will kind of fall into place. So maybe just some arches and some like, you know, rounding of the spine back and forth that's really good and stretching from side to side. The whole of it could take you 20 minutes to do all of this and it will have, I believe, a very deep impact on your life, who you are and your relationship with other people because they change when you change. Mm. Thank you very much, Heather. That's been so great having you with us.
Thank you. And, Thank um, you for having me. And uh, if anyone has any feedback on today's podcast, it's no hurry, no, <laughs> no worry, no curry at gmail.com. We'd like to close the podcast today with a meditation and um, something on being able to uh, be grateful for everything that we have, as Heather was telling us. So um, if we can start now, being comfortable on your chairs and breathing in and gently breathing out. And with every breath, allowing your body to relax and allowing your mind to relax. looking back at what is it that I can appreciate in my life today. I may have a lot of positive people surrounding me. People that support me and that uplift my life. I appreciate them. I acknowledge their presence in my life. also be grateful for receiving all the wonderful food that I have access to. And instead of making it a common habit, I start to appreciate all the effort that was put into in that I'm also grateful for all the experiences that I've had in my life all the wonderful things and the not so wonderful things Every, every experience has moved me forward in life, allowing me to experience and to learn. So I appreciate all that I am. I appreciate who I am. I appreciate my qualities. Because there is no one else in the world like me. I am unique. And I am special. Because I have qualities within me that can uplift others, that can bring benefit to others. appreciate those virtues of kindness, of love, to naturally emerge. I appreciate and I'm grateful for all that I am.
grateful to the higher energy that constantly protects me, that looks out for me, and that allows me to bring out the greatness that I have within. 